David Hodge is an artist who takes creative inspiration for his work from his life. He spent 25 years as the Queen of Soho. Legendary drag artist Dusty O has hosted many iconic London club nights, DJed all over the world and been a star on the West End stage and screen. You name it, he did it in a huge wig and couture designer outfit. Here David talks about each decade of his extraordinary life, the highs and the lows. This is David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. Hello, David. Hello, Jackie. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm all right. Good man, OK. You? Yes, fine, thank you. Joy so, please. last time we talked about, well, it was celebrity-filled, wasn't it? The, oh, there was a bit of name-dropping going on, wasn't was there? Shame on me. Clanging away. Oh, she's living in the past. I always love a, a good name-drop, though, so, you know, <laughs> you're fine with me. And But we left you behind in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about pride and we talked about the fact that Drugs and alcohol became quite a major part of your life. Yeah, it had done, unfortunately, by that point. And so that did that continue into the 2010s? Well, the 2010s were kind of... It was an odd decade for me because I had peaked, obviously, in my career, um, but I was still very stable and I was still seen as this sort of, like, how can I put it, enigmatic drag mother... By this point, I was mid-40s and um, had been doing it so long. And because, I, you know, I'd always been fairly high profile, kids had kind of grown up on me, you know, which was a, a really weird experience because in my head I was still 20. You know, but, but people were like, hey, mama, you know, oh, no, don't don't call me that. Don't call me that. I want to be the pretty one. <laughs> and I, I was running a very successful club night called Tranny Shack. Uh, Madame Jojo's. And this was in the days when you could call a club tranny shack. You can't really do that anymore because, uh, you know, as things have changed and developed, we've become more sensitive to people's, uh, you know, proclivities around names and things like that. And tranny is no longer appropriate. However, in those days, it was appropriate and it was fun and it was lovely and it was embracing. And even though it was called tranny shack, we created this amazing space where people could be themselves for 10 years, a decade. And that was before there was trans prides and before there was awareness, as there is now, really. So um, towards the end of it, we did get criticism because of the name. And I, my answer would always be, but look what we've given you. In a t- you know, for a decade, OK, it's become an unfashionable name, For the last decade, we've given you a space, we've given you a place place to be yourself and put so much effort into it. That club became my life, you know, that that decade was dominated by my work at Tranny Shack. And it did very well, you know. At one point, we were doing three a week. We were doing Wednesdays, Tranny Shack Soho. Um, Saturdays, we'd maybe do um, Tranny Shack East, 
uh, East Block or Tranishak North at the Black Cap or Tranishak South at the Eagle. So there was, and we did prides and all sorts of things. It was, it was a real brand. It really worked. Even though it was a small venue, it only held 300 people. We were always busy, always full. We had some great acts, international acts, and we created this like UK brand of Tranishak. Um, and it was all encompassing because obviously I was the promoter. So I chose who worked there. I chose what music was played there and the door, everything was all down to me by that point, which was kind of what I'd always wanted. You know, Tranishak was my dream club. It was full of dressed up people. All the kooks came, all the freaks, all the fabulous people. Um, it was in beautiful Jojo's, which was historic, you know, in this place that had been going for decades and decades and decades and all those famous people that had been there and amazing, amazing venue. So it was kind of everything I wanted and it became, as I say, all-consuming, really. Took up a lot of my time. <laughs> So you were still Dusty O at this point? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, Dusty O was like the queen of queen of Tranishak. And the queen of Soho. <laughs> By this point, yeah. it was No, that was when the, the press didn't start, kept calling me the queen of Soho. I never actually used that myself. But because I'd been around a long time and had worked in so many different venues and was so associated with Soho, I think that the queen of Soho came from a Guardian um, interview that I did talking about Soho through the decades. And I think they asked me about the 90s and it was like a big, massive interview in the end. It turned out to be like three pages and they kept using it. And of course, the gay press then tagged on to it and I became the Queen of Soho. I didn't ever really particularly feel like the Queen of Soho, to be honest. And how did you feel about <laughs> Dusty O at this time? Um, I wanted to get away from it, if the truth was known. It was... To me, by that, this point, it was it was a weight around my neck, you know, because I wasn't I wasn't old by any any you know I was mid forties at this point, and I felt as though I'd achieved everything that I could with what I'd got with her, you know. Been on TV, I'd done magazines, I'd done records, I'd you know you name it. You'd had dinner it. with Madonna. I'd had dinner with Let's Madonna. Let's not forget that <laughs> she did, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was like. What more can I do? You know, I've DJed, I've hosted, I've, oh gosh. And I was drinking more and more and more, just to be honest, to get me through the boredom of it. Because even though Tranishat was great fun, for me to have great fun, I needed increasing amounts of alcohol. And um, it was the, that time really that drink sort of became, you know, not a good good part of my life not a good aspect of my life I was drinking far too much saying the most ridiculous things while I was on stage because I was so blind drunk I'd go on stage at one o'clock to introduce the acts every week we had wonderful acts um drag trapeze artists or fire eaters it was all drag related everything was drag related you couldn't work at tranny show unless you were drag um so it was great fun but I would by the time stage time had come I would have had half a bottle of whiskey. So you can imagine some of like the, the rubbish that I sort of spouted on. Unfortunately, <laughs> it reoccurs every now and again on YouTube and things like that. I think, oh my God, I'm so drunk there. And oh, it's an embarrassment. However, it was what it was. So, you know. 
And sadly, at this time, you'd, you'd lost your dad, hadn't you? Yeah, things had started to go quite sour for me. I'd had, I'd had my fun by this point, I think. I think I'd become, started to become quite lonely and quite bitter. Dad had died. Um, I was stuck in this never-ending circle of drag club, drag club, drag club, booze, booze, booze. You know, it wasn't a particularly happy time. And I think when my dad died, it made me reassess. So as, as when, you know, when someone dies, it will make you reassess your own life and think about your own mortality. And I just thought... My dad died too early. You know, he was in his 70s, but that's still fairly early, I believe. And he died not having achieved the things that he was capable of and things that he wished for. And he was a brilliant person. He was an amazing, incredibly funny, lovely, giving man. Um, But drink had ruined his life, really. And here was me. I'd started off doing so well in my chosen career, which was drag and performing. And I was going down the same, the same road and I think I kind of realised it and I thought things are going to have to change fairly soon now. You can't keep doing this forever. You know, like my mother had always used to say, well, you can't look do this when you're 40. And I was, you know. <laughs> um, but I, there was something inside just saying to me, you're worth more than this. You're not just a clown. You're not just this thing that people roll out for entertainment. You know, that's the problem with drag for me was that you were never viewed seriously. How could you be viewed seriously? You're a performing clown in a wig and heels and boobs and blah, blah, blah. And okay, drag has got some amazing, it's got things that, life enhancing things, you know, it pushes you in different areas of your gender and acceptance and, and it is an important thing. It's a, a political statement as much as anything else. But I commercialised it and branded it in such a way that I had become this sort of almost castrated, neutered queen of Soho. This It was a caricature. And that's not who I was, you know, this drunken old dame who'd seen it all, done it all, been there. That wasn't who I was, and I remembered who I was from when I was younger, and I was thinking, well, you're worth a bit more than this. But were you scared to let Dusty O go? Totally scared, because it was my financial input, you know, she she earned my money to live on. And by that point, I'd been doing it for so long, I'd forgotten what real normal work was, you know, general work. I I slept till two o'clock in the afternoon. I never got up before two o'clock. Um... My life was so different to normal, your average Joe, you know. And uh, I was terrified. I thought, well, what can I do? You know, I'm mid-40s now. And I haven't had a job since Lighthouse, early 90s. What can I do other than this? I can do it. I can do clubs. I can do it. But everything was just that. Aimed at entertainment and drag. And... Um, and you knew you had to get away from that environment because of drinking. Yeah, I knew I, I knew I had to find something. And it was round about that time, actually, that I started doing theatre. And that was incredible for me because I'd always been my own boss. For the last 10, 15 years, I'd been my own boss. I'd done what I wanted, said what I wanted with no, you know, there was no consequences to my actions. 
Um, but you can always live with it if you've made the decision. If you've, yeah, but you, it's more difficult to live with it if you've made a bad decision. And I've made lots of bad decisions <laughs> and I knew it. Um, so I was offered um, a part in a panto in Leicester Square Theatre. As Dustio. As Dustio, yeah. They, they approached um, my friend Walt, who sometimes did bookings and things for me. He said, oh, there's no way she's going to know why she'll do panto. No, no, she won't do that. It's last resort. Which it kind of is in a way for like, you know, Danny LaRue and people like that, you know, doing panto is the last way that you can earn a few quid out of the drag when everything goes a bit off kilter. But um, I didn't really see it like that because it was small. It was a small venue and I read the script and it was more like a carry on script. It was very vaudeville, very, oh, it was fast, so, so fast. And I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And then... When I knew that, when there's no, oh, there's no way you can do this. Of course, me being stubborn, sort of, there's every way you're going to do this and you're going to do it brilliantly. So, so I took on this part and money was rubbish. Everything was rubbish. Little tiny venue below the theatre. And we did 74 performances of this show that we worked like beasts at in rehearsals for a month. And it was brilliant. We really, really did well. And I found somehow I found this like discipline that I'd had earlier on in my life and it had come back because it had to be disciplined when we were doing three shows a day, you know. So it was back to Elaine at the youth club. It was. It was all those old skills and I found something where I could be not be her. You know, it looked like her and it was billed as her. But actually the character that I sort of made up was... Totally not like her at all. And it was a stage character. Um, her name was Safonda Cox. And, um, and the show was very fast, as I say, very, very, very rude. It was only over 18s. It was brilliant. It was done on a shoestring, shoestring budget. And, but they did have very good PR for it. And when the reviews came in, we had excellent reviews, like five-star reviews from everywhere, really. Broadway, baby, you name it. They gave us amazing reviews and I got started getting all these really good reviews and in The Times and The Guardian and, you know, The Queen of Soho's found a niche and all this business. And it was lovely. So then the theatre signed me on, um, obviously they were pleased because they, you know, got all these great reviews and the great show. Then they offered me a five-year contract at the Leicester Square Theatre um, to do two shows, two different shows a year. So it worked out at about, probably about 150 shows a year. Every Christmas we'd do the panto, the same one, but we'd change it slightly, obviously. And it was just filthier and filthier and filthier. And it went from being in the little room, the studio room downstairs, into the main theatre in Leicester Square Theatre because it was selling so well and it built so well over the years. And we were also doing summer shows as well, like review shows and things like that. And like my own show. And um, yeah, so for five years, I had the discipline of theatre and that kind of saved me really um, from going totally into this drunken, debauched old Soho madam because I knew that when I was doing a show, I couldn't drink the night before. I couldn't drink before the show. I couldn't drink during the show. It had to be fast. And because what I was producing, I was proud of, you know, I was, I am very proud of those shows. They were wonderful fast, witty, hilarious shows. And I was extremely professional and I was great in them, you know, as we all were. So I was proud of myself again. 
after be inwardly feeling that I was just this drunken old clown. So that was a great upturn in your career, but you also had an upturn in your love life. <laughs> <laughs> I did kind of have a little upturn, yes. Um, <laughs> how can I put this? I never expected by this point, I thought my um, romantic days were over. I thought there's no one's going to take you on. You know, this was mid to late 40s and um, I'd peaked. <laughs> And I hadn't found love, you know, I'd, found, I'd had a few relationships, not very successful. Everything always turned sour on that front for me somehow. How did you worked out why? Oh, it was me. It was my fault. It was, you know, you, you have to be able to love yourself before you can love someone else, they say, don't they? But I, you know, I was so, I was a very mixed up person for most of my early life wasn't quite sure where I was going, why I was doing things. And then I met this this very young, <laughs> like 20 years younger than me, Japanese guy at a picnic. My friend was having a picnic in Primrose Hill. And he said, oh, I'll walk you back to your bus. And I said, no, you're all right. Because like I was getting the bus down, down to King's Cross where I live. No, no, you're OK. And then every week after that, he'd turn up at Tranny Shack. Flowers started arriving, you name it chocolates, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be going, oh, my God, there he is again. Look, he's turned up. And I was having none of this for about 18 months. And he just... Why? Why were you? Well, I'd never imagined myself with, A, with someone younger. Mark is smaller than me. So I always thought that I'd end up with, like, some great big wrestling butch man. Um, and he was everything that I didn't know about. I didn't know about the Japanese culture. I didn't know about... No, and it is a very different culture to ours and how they do things and the etiquette of life. <laughs> and it, it was all very, very alien to me. And so I rejected it, which is what I did a lot in those days, knee-jerk reactions. If, you didn't if I didn't understand it, it spooked me. And if it spooked me, I moved away from it or I was rude to it, <laughs> you know. Until it then moved Until away. Until then it moved away itself. <laughs> yes. And sent you file letters telling you how awful you were. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was a big move. But eventually things did move forward a little bit. And then when they started to move forward with us, it happened very, very quickly. And within six months, Mark was living with me, really. And... Um, and then we well, got, thank goodness he pers he persevered <laughs> with you. I don't know why he bothered, but he did. He obviously sees something that other people didn't. Um, but he 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 kind of changed my life so much, and just feeling secure, you know, feeling secure was the it was a new thing to me. I'd never felt secure as a child because of how things were with my parents and whatever. I'd never felt secure in my job because I'd always got my eye on who was round the corner or keeping it all going. And Mark offered me some security and and love as well, you know, just like genuine kindness. And I, I've asked him, I said, well, when, when we met, that was sort of like the height of my dusty onus <laughs> towards the end anyway. I said, I wasn't even, how did you even see me underneath? You know, it's so I could see something in your eyes. That's what he always says. I could see that, I could see a kindness in your eyes, but you always hid behind it. And I think that was true, you know, and he just encouraged and allowed me 
to become me again, I think, slowly. And not have to pretend to be someone else, not have to, you know, spend three hours to get ready <laughs> to face the world, to just be yourself, you know, and actually that what I was was all right. It had taken a long time, really, to sort of, for anyone to say that, but, but that's how I felt. And so you finally retired Dusty O. Well, she retired herself, actually. Circumstances collided. Um, JoJo's was closed. There's a big, there's a, you know, there's, there's still an ongoing scandal as to why JoJo's was closed. I can't say too much about that for legal reasons, but JoJo's was closed. So when JoJo's closed, Tranny Shack was over. I didn't want to do it anywhere else. And to be honest, by that point, I didn't particularly want to do it at JoJo's either. Um, so I thought, right, the decision's been made for me. I was doing my, I was doing a show at Leicester Square Theatre. I was in Panto. I got 60 shows to do. They closed JoJo's and I thought, I'm just going to have to like get this out of the way, do these shows and then worry about it afterwards. So I did the shows and, um, and then obviously at the end of it, I thought, well, that's it then now. I've got no work, you know, and I started to phone around to see if I could get some work. And it was amazing, you know, the, how people reveled in their rejection. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't blame them in a way because there were some people who I'd been behaved a little bit badly with probably or not been too pleasant to in years gone by. And I, I, was, I thought, right, you're stuffed. You're going to have to get a job. <laughs> Mark was living with me. Um, we'd planned, we were planning on getting married. It was important that I had a job because of his visa situation and, you know, it's quite complicated. But I thought you're going to, well, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to have to do something. And, um, yeah, I mothballed her. Did you feel sad about that? No. At all? No. People always ask me that and they go, oh, you bet you miss her. Oh, no, I don't miss her at all. And um, I'm glad she's gone. She wasn't me. Would you ever resurrect her? No. A lot of money. <laughs> if the money was right. If the money was right. If Madonna said she'd pay. <laughs> I don't, well, the thing is now, you know, I'm sort of mid-50s and the face has gone. You know, you can't do magic. <laughs> Give me an ironing board, I'll iron my face. Pick me jowls up. There's all sorts of filters these days. <laughs> there is. But, but, but I just, I no, I have no desire whatsoever to do that again. Never, ever. Obviously, if someone said, oh, you know, here's a huge amount of money, will you do it? I'd do it. But it wouldn't be the same. So they'd be wasting their money. <laughs> so she's gone and you had to get a job. Yes. So what did you do? So luckily for me, the guy who'd signed me at the theatre on my contract, Martin Witz, is a lovely man. He owns the Museum of Comedy in Hoban and he offered me a job there. And I became um, duty manager, looking after this little museum and theatre. It only holds about 150 people, the theatre there, and they have shows in the evening and then they've got all this amazing objet d'art comedy, theatre comedy, objet d'art. And oh, it's a lovely, lovely venue. It's in a crypt of a church. So I did that for about six, seven months um, and loved it. Weirdly enough, I loved it. <laughs> I remember my 
feet used to really hurt because I, I wasn't used to much movement, you know. And so I got thin at least, which was lovely. Um, lost a load of weight, started going to the gym, sleeping at night, um, having regular hours. The money wasn't great, struggled, but we did, uh, we, you know, we managed. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's <laughs> I got real, I suppose. It was a, was a big thing for me because I'd lost my, I felt at first as though I'd lost my, my identity because my identity was her, you know, and I had to re-find who I was and re-find what was important to me. So, so I grew a beard, which people thought was really, really weird thing to do, like a big beard. And it was as, it was as if the, my beard was saying like, goodbye, Dusty O, now you're a man. <laughs> and people were used to be horrified by my beard, to be honest. Like, oh, you shouldn't have that. It doesn't suit you. It doesn't suit you. I always thought it suited me, so I didn't really care what they thought anyway. But it was my big F off. <laughs> Statement. It was. It was. And, um, yeah, I got used to doing normal things. And again, being David and, again. And being David and getting up for work and having a boss who sometimes told me off. And I couldn't turn around and say F off to <laughs> <laughs> there was no diva strops or anything like that. It was mixing with not outrageous, fashiony drag pop stars. I was mixing with just normal, nice people. And I rediscovered how nice people can be, actually. Normal people, everyday people. You didn't have to have a huge, ridiculous outfit on to get my attention anymore, you know? And that was a very, very, that's a, that's a very liberating feeling, really, because it opened so many doors again to you, you know, that I'd subliminally had closed myself, you know, unless you were of interest visually or career-wise, I wouldn't have been that interested in, you know, in, in anyone. Oh, look at the boring naff, you know. But suddenly you start to realise that, it's not just about the visuals, you know. And I became friends with people who I really didn't think I'd be friends. I ever imagined myself being friends with. And it was wonderful. And I love it. And I'm still friends with them now. <laughs> and Mark encouraged your art. How did that come about? Yeah, yeah. Mark started that whole thing, really. He'd been an art student at um, in London and he'd done a master's in art. Obviously, I'd always been creative in my own way and vi visually creative with my makeup and hair and whatever. I always did it myself. And when all that stopped, I didn't have sort of like an outlet for that sort of creativity. And I didn't think that I needed it at first, but gradually I, I started to get really frustrated. It was, you know, I needed to do something. So first of all, I did the garden. That was all right, you know, that was fun, but it was, still wasn't enough. So Mark suggested that I do a bit of painting and he gave me a couple of uh, couple of little tiny little canvases and some kids' paints. I said, oh, just do something creative, do something creative. That's what you need to do. And I was like, no, I don't. I haven't painted a picture since I was 16. But I did. I painted these two little pictures. And as you do, I put them on Facebook for everyone to laugh at. Now, oh, look what I've done this afternoon. And... um. About three people asked to buy them. And I'm sure that they asked to buy them because, you know, I was coasting on the reputation 
of the past. <laughs> but um, of course it was, yes, you can buy them if you wish. So, so, so they did and I did more. And it, I started to sort of see it as a therapy, really, because painting is very solitary and you sit alone and, and you're with your thoughts and you're trying to express your thoughts from your head to your hand to a canvas. There's a lot of thinking time. But I loved it and it was just what I needed. And so I, I would spend days and weeks painting, painting, painting every spare hour. And I didn't write it. I still, you know, I, I, I tend to not write my own work anyway, but I just found it very liberating. I found it something very therapeutic about the whole process of creating something. And of course, if someone buys it afterwards, that's, you know, validation for what you've you've done it oh brilliant they actually like it so I started doing that yeah and it it, it became sort of an all-consuming passion really by this point I was working somewhere else I'd moved on from the Museum of Comedy and I was working for another friend of mine at his salon just doing reception front of house got a very beautiful salon in Hampstead and uh, he always used to encourage me as well my boss is so you know you do something with your paintings they're really nice you, you, you there's space for development here he introduced me to a lady who'd got an art cafe in Belsize Park and I showed her my work and she said, oh, yeah, I'll sh I'd love to sh show you some, some of your work here. And I was like, oh, amazing. So I did 16 acrylic prints of previous works and hung them in a cafe. We had a little opening night party, invited everyone I knew, and they all sold every single one of them. And I also got lots of commissions off them as well, like, because it was a print, obviously, you can do more than one of them. So it was an amazing feeling. And I felt like that was the first point that I'd achieved something since my club days. It was like a personal achievement. As David. As David, yeah. It was the first thing that I'd done for so many years that was mine. It wasn't masked in makeup or someone else's interpretation of who I was. Yeah, and it was a good a good feeling. So I built on that feeling. I carried on painting. I decided to take a month off work and go to Spain and stay with my friend Nick and his lovely villa in the hills and um, do some painting. And Mark encouraged me to do that as well. Yeah, you, that'd be great for you, blah, blah, blah. So I went over and I painted 22 pictures, which were then... <laughs> <laughs> hadn't thought it out very well, actually, because it cost so much to get them back. Ship them over. <laughs> to ship them over. <laughs> I'd shipped all the canvases there anyway. I could have just bought the canvases while I was there. Uh, anyway, lesson learned. I shan't do that again. But um, I painted all these pictures while I was there for the month. And it. I think by that point, I was really becoming me again, I suppose. I felt more confident in what I was doing and who I was. And the work showed it was lots of very vibrant colours and textures and, you know, themes that I knew. I always want, I always still do paint things that I know, the things that I associate with. If someone says, for example, will you paint my pet tortoise for a thousand pounds? I would always say no, because I don't want to paint tortoises. I don't know anything about tortoises, you know, but if it's a drag queen or something like that, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> or, you know, an animal, an animal that I'm interested in. So, yes, I went to Spain and then when I came back, I had this remarkable stroke of luck in the sense that 
a guy I'd met while I was in Spain was very encouraging with about the painting. He said, oh, you know, it's lovely. You really need to work on this. You need to push this forward. So when I got, did get back, I tried to get some of my work in various galleries. No galleries would have it, basically. No one was very interested in my backstory or anything like that, which I thought was a wonderful, sellable story, but no one else thought it. So I thought, OK, I'll do it on my own. I'll do my own gallery. <laughs> So uh, there's definitely a theme here. <laughs> do it yourself. Do it yourself. <laughs> yes, totally. That's all what I'm totally about that. So um, I had to find a gallery. So I scrummaged around and I went and found this basement in Brick Lane in a shop, a goth clothes shop. And I needed, I think I needed £3,000 for it to go on for a month. But right, I haven't got £3,000 because that was like twice as much while as what I earned in a month. <laughs> Um, so I, I said, I did this thing on social media. I put, um, do you think crowdfunding is, is cheap? Do you think it's like, you know, what, what are your opinions if I was to crowdfund an exhibition? And most people said, don't do it, to be honest, that it was, you know, it looked really cheap and whatever. And I, that, I did feel it was like that. But then another, this friend who I'd met in Spain, he messaged me and he said, He'd bought a, um, a print off me the year before. So he'd got all my bank details because he transferred the payment for the print straight into it. It was only like £30 or something. He said, check your bank details. So I checked my bank and he'd put £4,000 into my bank account. <laughs> and that enabled me to do the second exhibition, which sold again really well. And... People were saying nice things, starting to say nice things about the work by then, you know, because it, it was all very sort of New York, early 80s, do it yourself in a basement of a shop on Brick Lane, you know. So they're, they're kind of like, we're getting it a bit more. And then because of that exhibition, I was asked to do an exhibition in Spain. Um, and so I went over and did that, which was very interesting. And, and at that exhibition, I met this guy who I'd known previously, actually, vaguely, um, called Baron Davenport, who owns Davenport's breweries and various hotels and venues and things like that. And he loved the work. He said, I'd like to sponsor you. He said, I'm really interested in what you're doing. And he bought quite a lot of pictures from me. He, you know, he really was into it. And he sponsored the next exhibition, which was in Birmingham at um, this really amazing space called the Custard Factory. He paid for everything, you know, basically. I wouldn't have been able to do that exhibition without Wayne, no way. He was so, so good and helped me so much. And from that exhibition, <laughs> I met the local MP of that area in Birmingham, who then invited me to do a show at Parliament. And I was the first open queer exhibitor of the type of work that I do in Parliament. And so obviously it was an amazing, you know, it was a, it was a, a one-off thing to exhibit in Parliament <laughs> in those beautiful rooms, you know, that we've got all those old, beautiful old masters on the wall. And there was it's me taking all my stuff. <laughs> to think this all started with Mark just giving you a couple of... And a child's painting set. And saying, just do something. Yeah, yeah. And well, the Parliament one, that did really well. Um, got lots of press as well, you know, which is amazing because it was it was pretty 
pretty important. It was a it was a stand alone moment, let's say, for gay people, queer people, and um, then Gay Pride, London Pride, asked me if I'd curate um, a competition, an exhibition um, of all queer art that people could send in. So I did that um, the year after the the Parliament thing. But then, unfortunately, COVID kicked in, didn't it? So it's been fairly quiet since. However, my wonderful news is, is that I've signed a contract this week with a London art gallery, the Brunswick Gallery, who are going to be doing a big show for me later in the year. Well, so that's later. great. So <laughs> good things come to those who wait. Wow. <laughs> and what a story that just the path that that took from one exhibition to another, to another, to the Houses of Parliament. Yeah, very strange. Very, very strange. But but it's because... Each, one, each, each of those pieces of the jigsaw was really important. You know, the do-it-yourself bit, the let someone else help you a bit. You know, it was, a, it was definitely, looking at it, it's like a, a preordained journey that we don't quite know what's next. <laughs> which is an excellent place to finish this decade. <laughs> yes. So you'd finished on and up, which is lovely. So you'd finished, you're in love, you're with Mark. Yeah, things were very different. Very, very different. And then we looked forward to the 2020s. And of course, like you say, the, the word is lockdown, unfortunately. It is, isn't it? But we'll discuss that next time. Okay. Hi, George. I've created a soundtrack from the 2010s. I've chosen three songs for you to have a listen to, think about. If you were stuck on a desert island and you had to listen to them on repeat, which one would you probably choose? Someone like you, Adele, Telephone, Lady Gaga, and my own personal favourite from your last album, Life by Culture Club. Mm, what was the Gaga one? Telephone. Telephone. So I'm where she had the big funny thing on her. <laughs> yeah. That with Beyonce. Yeah. In the prison. Um, yeah. I don't know, really. Um, probably out of all... I said, that's a really difficult one because, when you know, when people say to me, do you like any new music? I always kind of decided to say, there is really nothing new. No. All versions of other things. You know, when people say, oh, it's really modern or it's very now. Well, everything's, <laughs> everything's now because there is only now. But I can always imagine Adele singing your songs, weirdly enough. I, don't, I really, I especially live. Please ask her to. <laughs> but I really can imagine her singing, like, like Life, for example. Yeah, because but I think that brings you back to my point that actually... You know, there's eight notes and a handful of variants. So, you know, it's not rocket science. <laughs> it's like, you know, whether you're singing, you know, do you really want to hurt me or someone like you, it's just, you're just using words. It's just getting that blend of the words and the melody. And then, of course, it has to sit nice on your voice. Some, you know, like a producer might say, well, you've sung other songs in A, for example, with great ease. You see, yeah, but the word... This sentence, this particular word just doesn't fall out of my throat in the way that some other things do. So yeah, it's yeah. kind of a weird thing. And so you know what each song all, is like an organic identity of its own. You know? so, and I think you're just looking for that, you know, you don't want things to be, you know, full of air. You want them to have some 
resonance. And I have a lot of fun. I use a lot of magic realism in what I write because I love, I love like Simon Rushdie's books and Arundhati Roy, those kind of mad books that are really full of imagination. And they take months to read because <laughs> you have to keep <laughs> back going, gotten all the characters, you know. Yeah, yeah. You've got to immerse yourself in this stuff. I, f- I find reading poetry is really helpful, reading what other people do. And obviously I've been working for the last two years with an acting coach. So I've learned a lot of stuff about words that I didn't know before. You know, I didn't realise how terrible my grammar was till I started doing acting class. So I was like, oh my <laughs> God, I'm terrible. But I've always used lots of words because words are so important and they have such value, you know. what It's like power, isn't it? Words. Yeah, words so much power. So much power. You can really paint a picture with a sentence that just is, you know, with colourful thoughts flying through his head. I mean, that suggests <laughs> all manner of, you know, of activities. Fantastic. Well, thanks for that, George. Next week, we'll be looking at the 2020s. The 1920s, the roaring 20s, that's what <laughs> You'll like this one. This podcast was produced and edited by Jackie O'Malley. Post-production is by Carl Svensson at Tadar Media Limited. Music by George O'Dowd and Luke Begley. Produced by Kevin Frost. Original artwork by David Hodge. Podcast artwork designed by Lee Dyer. This has been David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window. The boy who sat by the window With colourful thoughts flying through his head Some of the story, but it's not over yet. <laughs>